And so Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he said, and he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, would you this morning again keep us in faith? Lord, I know our hearts are distracted. I know for some of us our love has grown stale. I know some of us come in here with pride thinking we don't even need to bother with this. And for each of us in all of the places that we are at, we ask in this moment, will you again keep us in faith, remind us of the reason we gather, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the saying goes, God can do all things. God can do all things. Oh, really? Huh. Can God make a rock so big that he cannot lift it? Have you heard that one before? It's it's the sort of question that's usually asked by a university student who simply wants to poke the logical hole in the belief of God. God, can he possibly make a rock so big that he cannot lift it? Well, there are a few problems with this question. First is that it's not an honestly logical question. I think if we were to ask this question in the way that it ought to be framed, you might ask it like this. Is there any way that the God who can make all things can make a rock so big that the God who can also lift all things couldn't lift it? I think when you ask it that way, you're getting to the heart of it. It, It's illogical. It'd be like if I asked you, uh, what does the color yellow smell like? You say, no, it doesn't work that way. You don't understand. I think in short, God does not do stupid things. <laughs> so, of course, God would not make a rock so big he cannot lift it. It's impossible. But let me shock you for a moment when I tell you that if someone asks you this kind of question, you can also respond that there are many things that God cannot do. Maybe that will blow them away because they were used to seeing the bumper sticker that God can do all things, which is true. But there are things that God cannot do in the same breath. For example, God cannot lie. Did you know that? God cannot be not God. He he may become a man as he did in the person of Jesus, but he is still fully God. 
God cannot go against his word. God cannot deny himself. God cannot cease to be spirit, to be, lo- to be light, to be love, to be a all-consuming fire, as Hebrews tells us. So God is able to do all things, but God is not able to do illogical things. What we see in this morning's passage, there is one other thing that God cannot do. Let's put our finger right where it hurts. Look down at at verse 36 with me. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Here we get the affirmation that God can indeed do all things. God is more than able to do things in his power and with his wisdom, with his foreknowledge and insight and creativity more than we ever first thought. If you just went reading straight through from Genesis to Revelation, it should leave us jaw-dropped at the very things that God himself is able to do. And yet, here is a request. Jesus asked the Father to find another way to save us. And what we'll see this morning is the beginning of that request being answered. Is there another way? Is there another way? Father, all things are possible. Is there another way? Father, please take, let this cup pass from me. Give me another way out. And the movement this morning is interesting for this second section of chapter 14. First, we will read what must take place. It's the scripture's prediction. And then we will see the private conversation uh, that goes on between Jesus and the father where Jesus is asking, must this really take place? And then through two trials, I'll try and highlight these two trials, we'll see the Father's answer to the Son's request. And so for those of you taking notes, it's the Scripture's prediction, the Son's request, and we'll conclude with the Father's response. So first, the Scripture's prediction. Well, after what we examined last week with the new Passover and the new covenant, the disciples and Christ, they actually, they're heading out of this upper prepared room where they had the first communion. It was in the inner city of Jerusalem. And now they're heading back out up to the Mount of Olives where they sing a hymn. This was most likely one of the Hillel Psalms that would have been sung during the Passover season, which is Psalm 113 to 118. And Jesus here entered, uh, interjects so that they are keyed in on how things would proceed, that the scripture says that they will all fall away. No one here will remain faithful to death. And then we get this interesting quotation from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. It's key to this whole section. And if you and I were to go back and we were to spend time in Zechariah 13, we would read through it and you would kind of walk away going, this is kind of obscure. What's this mean? What's really going on? And yet, even if you were trying to suss out what's going on in Zechariah 13, you would say, at least there are a few things I can say for sure about this passage. Listen to to the full quote. The full quote that Jesus is taking a snippet from is, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so key to that quote is that the one who stands right next to God Almighty, who stands right there, it's his shepherd. And so you have to understand with the Old Testament, shepherds 
often were brought up in reference against the wicked, evil shepherds of Israel. But the shepherd that's being mentioned right here in Zechariah 13 is God's shepherd, his shepherd who stands right next to him. And this is really important because it keys us into the identity of the shepherd. It is not the wicked shepherds. No, this one is his Messiah. This one is his Christ. It is Jesus. And so that when this Jesus, this Messiah is struck, or in other words, once the passion kicks off, all surrounding sheep will scatter. I think we could say it this way, that you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. I believe that that may be the central point of this section. The sword must strike the shepherd. The sheep must scatter. And then Peter, doing what Peter does best here, he speaks ahead of what he understands. So he says, Jesus, this is great and all, but uh, that's not how this is going to go down. We will join you, and if need be, we're going to go down in a blaze of glory. Uh, Even if these other ten fall away, Jesus, not I, I, I will remain with you, Jesus, through thick and thin. Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. No way, Lord. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the other 10 disciples are going, well, yeah, yeah, us too, us too. We're, we're in this. We're, we're in this. We're going to do this. And I think right there, if Peter stands as a humble reminder to you and I here this morning, Proverbs says, pride goes before the destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I recall a a gal uh, who wrote about just how easy it was to follow Christ when things are going swimmingly well in your life. When everything's going well, it's rather easy. And well in the world, well in your life. You know, she says you're in college and you have more energy And you have lots of time on your hands. You have a triple latte in your hand. And you have two hours to do your your devotions that morning. And she says, it's all uninterrupted time. The world is your oyster. Following Jesus in those moments, it's a walk in the park. But when you have children who demand most of your time, or grandchildren who demand a lot of your time, or a boss who's frustrated with you, pressures for you to give in on your faith to get the work done, You need to appease the children. You need to appease the spouse. There's very little time. Then devotion to Christ can become more challenging. Or when your mind and your body are starting to fail you, the difficulty of following Christ can come with the trial. It's easy when there's no pressure, but when the pressure comes on, we see the temptation for the sheep to scatter. So the reminder to us, what happened to Peter could happen to us. It's easy to say that we will follow Jesus until the pressure is on. So take heed, lest you fall. After this exchange, we see the son's request. Uh, This occurs in the Garden of Gethsemane. The olive orchard that even today, if you go there to Jerusalem, you better include in your tour package to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where you can see these robust olive trees there. It's a beautiful area. It would be a beautiful place to be. And it's still there today. And it's, it's, it's a bit ironic that here, the, 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 the uh, garden, Gethsemane, means olive press. And here, Jesus, in our scene, he comes before the Father privately. And what is he asking? Don't let me be pressed. 
Don't let me be the one who's crushed. His soul is sorrowful. His soul is heavy. Have you ever considered that so many followers of Christ have died following the Lord and many of them have very courageous final words and actions while Jesus seems here to have his knees buckle? Has it made you kind of scratch and go, wait a sec, Jesus' followers seem to have a relatively easy time going to death at times for him. And yet, here Jesus himself, the God of the universe, he hasn't even faced the persecution yet, and yet he's sorrowful unto death at this point. Consider Polycarp during the first and second century, who was brought much like Jesus here before a religious and, and civil leaders and was told to reject Christianity and his life would be spared. If you turn back from Christ, we'll spare you. If not, you're dead today. And Polycarp's response was this. The fire that you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. You see the boldness. Talk about courageous, bold faith. How is it here that Jesus is so shaken when his own followers later are able to be so bold in dying for him? What Jesus saw before him, friends, that day, what Jesus realizes is about to strike him in that moment. It must have been horrific. It must have been, he must have had a sense of terror, of dread, of judgment and heaviness. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. He's facing the gravity, not just of dying, but the full weight of God's wrath poured out onto him. Because, friends, he is about to experience the punishment of every single one of your and my sin. Everyone, last drop of it, covered up. And the sorrow of this is almost enough to kill him. And so this is why, in private, between he and the Father, we get this line, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, this was a private conversation. You and I should not know about these words here. Jesus had kind of departed and taken a few steps away from Peter, John, and James. But for whatever reason, they overheard Jesus praying these words. And for whatever reason, at this point, Mark wants us to hear this private conversation between the Father and the Son. Do you understand what's happening here at this point? Jesus just got done telling the disciples. He told the 11 there, this is what must happen. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And then privately he goes to his father and says, does it have to be that way? Is there any other way? Is there some other way around this? Can I get out of this moment? Can you let this cup pass from me? Is there some other way out of this pit? So that we see in verse 36, He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed the same words. Now listen, after he got done coming back and rebuking Peter, he goes back to pray the same words. What words? Father. Let this cup pass from me. Don't let this judgment fall on me. And then we see in verses 40 
to the end of 42 here where we read, and again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go and see my betrayer is at hand. Back in 30, verse 35, what does he pray? That the hour might pass from him. Don't let that hour fall on me, Father. What do we see here in verse 41? The hour has come. It has come upon Jesus. And friends, this then will be the Father's response, in which we kind of see two trials at play. Not only will we see the Father's response, that the hour indeed has come, but through the two trials we'll see the Father's response, that the cup of wrath is not to be removed from Christ. Here in this section of verses 43 through 72, we will slowly catch that Jesus will face this all on his own. See, some people might assume at this moment, here's here's how it is. You have the 11 disciples and you have Jesus. And then Jesus has said, all right, I must go off and leave you now to face this all on my own. But friends, it's really the picture that Jesus has remained right in the place that they all should have remained, but that rather the the 11 will flee from the place of the wrath of God. And so here in one fell swoop, we see uh, an arrest, an abandonment, a trial and treason. Look at verse 43 with me. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12 And with him, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one that I kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came and he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But the one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out? As against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. So here we see in this moment the arrest and the abandonment. Peter, we are told by John, was the one going to battle, attempting to slice the the servant uh, of the high priest to, to probably get him top dead in the middle of the head. Perhaps he's missed and he only grazes his ear to slice his ear. Luke tells us that Jesus actually heals the servant in the moment that he picks up his ear and he he restores his ear. But more shocking to us here is how the betrayal of Judas is done with this kiss. This insincere flattery calling him rabbi. Perhaps Judas, he's still not understanding. He still doesn't get it. After all these years, he's not put it together. So he thinks, oh, I must get a club, a band of soldiers to come after Jesus because Jesus is going to be rising up in power, getting his own clubs and swords to, to fight on. And Jesus highlights just the ridiculousness of this whole scene where he essentially says, look at you, Judas, look at you. You come out here with tanks and special forces and a helicopter flying above with a spotlight aimed on me. Come on. Who do you think I am? Do you think I'm on the FBI's most wanted list of the most violent criminal? Who have you come out here to capture? Come on, I spent three years with you, Judas. 
You knew the love that I had for you. You saw the miracles of grace that I performed in your presence. The wisdom of me teaching here at the temple. The peace that I have come to bring. And look at you so smart. Come out here and wise as though you've come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Come on. And here the 11 apostles flee. But interestingly, they're not the only ones that flee from this scene. I don't know if you have seen this before at verse 51, but a young man followed him, meaning following Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, some believe, this is interesting, some believe that this unnamed man here is Mark, the one who wrote the gospel of Mark the author of this gospel, but he wishes to remain anonymous. This is possible. We don't know for sure who this is, but what is clear here is that the shame of running away naked is to be preferred over the shame of remaining with Jesus Christ. It does indeed just highlight how much the statement is true. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But I wonder too if something else is also going on here in this moment. Jesus, in the book of Mark, he prefers the title, the Son of Man. That emphasizes something. That emphasizes the humanness, the Adamness of Jesus. That he is the, the second Adam. He's the Son of Man. Not the Son of Angels, but the Son of Man here. So that if you back up here, you see something. Here in this scene that we get in Mark, you have a second Adam in a second garden who is facing temptation. As he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is indeed weak. And here in this second Adam in the second garden with the temptation, you also have a serpent who slithers up, who is betraying his own creator while the same issue that befell Adam and Eve befalls this unnamed man who's also naked in the garden and afraid and ashamed, now hiding himself from God who is in this very garden. Meanwhile, where the first Adam failed in the first garden, this second Adam This Jesus remains faithful and true. He passes the test as it were. Friends, this is good news for you and I here this morning. Uh, He passes the test. In the first garden, there is the flaming sword of the cherubim that are placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. And no longer can Adam and Eve get back into the garden because of the flaming sword. But here the second Adam will now take the sword to bring you and I back into the garden so that you and I can be in the presence of God Almighty himself. And here, where sin has separated us from our creator, the divine justice of the sword must fall on someone who will receive the punishment for sin. And here, Jesus remains resolute. The sword will indeed strike the shepherd, and the sheep will indeed be scattered. Well, we then move into the trial and treason section of verses 53 through 72. 
Jesus is brought before all the familiar leaders that we've been seeing and highlighting in the, in the Gospel of Mark. So we have the high priests here, the elders and the scribes. And they've come to find a way to charge Jesus guilty. This is not here, it's not a case of innocent until proven guilty. And here it's not even the inverse. It's not even you're guilty until we can prove that you are innocent. No, no, no. If you step back, you find out this fabricated trial rather is a guarantee that the innocent will be found guilty. Period. So the false accusations come. Notice from a quick reading of verse 58, how they say, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Now, this is how this trial goes. They are fabricating stuff because friends, Jesus never said, I will destroy this temple. Jesus does say uh, rather clearly in, in other passages where he will say um, somewhat cryptically, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But he never says or insinuates that he has come to violently tear down the temple himself. Rather, he comes to lay down his own temple, comes to lay down his own body. The high priest then says, what do you have to say for yourself? You're on trial for your life here right now. Jesus, he remains silent. So the high priest finally says, I'm going to just get right to it. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? By son of the blessed, that was a way of saying, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Speak plainly and tell me. And Jesus responds with what? I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. This is really in bold indeed here because Jesus is basically saying, you see this whole trial right here? You high priest, you're sitting in the judge seat. I'm the defendant here, but I want you to understand something. This trial is not going as you would see. You will see me as the judge of all heaven and earth. This moment, I'm not on trial. You are. And someday, they will see the judge in glory. The high priest hears this, and then he comes unglued. No longer can we even properly call this a trial. It really degrades into a mob riot. We see this in verse 63. The high priest, he tears his garments, and he said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all, con- are, they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying, prophesy, and the guards received him with many blows. This gruesome and horrific picture, the the shepherd must be struck. Our caring, loving, sacrificial shepherd for us struck. And in response, we see treason. Just as Jesus made it clear that this was to happen, and we see it quickly happening just right here. So Mark shows us Jesus literally being struck with blows. And now we see Peter, who fled but followed from a distance, now warms himself by a fire. And Jesus goes through the trial. So too, Peter here is going through another trial. And here, the judge is not the high priest. It's not the scribes. It's not the elders. The judge here is a little girl. The judge here, well, and I'm not speaking against women when I say this, no way. But in their culture, you have to understand that to be questioned by a younger person, I mean, they had no say. Uh, they, They had no authority. 
Uh, Further to be female and younger, even less so. Peter should have felt free to say, who are you? Go, Go your way. But when questioned by this judging little girl, he buckles. He comes undone himself. She asks him if he's connected with Jesus. He denies it. The girl then brings in others. She provokes Peter to come out with it. He doubles down. He denies it a second time. And then the bystanders say, certainly you are one of them for you are Galilean. In verse 71 through 72, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus consistently, faithfully follows through on everything he said he would do. Peter, he's promising big here, and he fails to deliver by remaining faithful to Jesus. Jesus will not cower to the clubs, to the swords, to the high priests, to the scribes, to the elders. And here, Peter, he's cowering to this little girl. Jesus shows him to be the true second Adam, the savior of the people. And Peter, like you and I, reveals just like all of us how much we need that savior. And this friends is all to show us that even the most devoted to Jesus can fail him. We have moments where like David and like Peter here, we greatly grieve the Lord and our fellow Christians. I wonder if you have yet to trust in Christ. If you view Christians as if they're all a bunch of perfect people who got it all together. I wonder if you're here with us this morning, you feel like that's what these people here are. They've got their lives all perfectly together. Well, Mark Dever, in one of his little booklets, he discusses running into a relative and telling them that he was becoming a Christian minister. So he says, getting the updates from the family, and he shares, I'm becoming a pastor. And this gal, this relative of his says, oh, (laughs) okay. And she says, well, you know, I sort of gave up on organized religion a long time ago. Uh, she says, I, I know the church, they're just a, it's, it's a pit of vipers. And then Dever says, well, what about the world? I mean, would you, wouldn't you say that they're a pit of vipers too? And she says, well, yes, okay, uh, the world is a pit of vipers too, but at least they know they're a pit of vipers. And Dever responds, you know, you might be surprised how much I agree with you. I, I think the world is a pit of vipers, and I, and I think too that the church is a pit of vipers. But I disagree. See, I think the world doesn't realize that they're a pit of vipers. And I believe the church realizes they are a pit of vipers. And that's why we're here because we need help because we know that we're dependent on God and we know that we're saved by grace alone. So Peter, he denies Jesus, but later is restored because Peter is saved too. By what? By grace alone. And when we pick back up in Mark in a, in a couple of weeks, we'll see that this whole affair is not confined just to the Jews, friends. Uh, the Romans will also play a role in this whole affair so that we can see everybody is playing a role in the passion. Everybody is playing a role. All of humanity, in effect, is bringing this one to suffer. I know we say, and I know we mean it in, in, in the sense we mean it. God can do all things. God can do all things. But this morning we're seeing that God, 
he cannot circumnavigate the cross. There is no other way around the cross. The main thrust of this section, it's not complicated. It's that things will happen just as it was written. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And then Jesus, in this great heaviness, he's asking, is there another way, Father? And the answer from the Father is no. There is no other way. For the shepherd who stands with God must be struck. And this morning, I just want you to consider, how does this land on us? How does this land on us here as we consider this passage? Well, in one sense, you have to understand that this side of the cross, after this has all occurred, the, sh- the shepherd now is ruling and reigning from the clouds in glory. And we as his sheep, we're no longer scattered. What do we do as a sheep now? Did you, did you know what church, ecclesia, the word church, what that really means? It's what we're doing right now. We're, we're the gathered. We gather together. We no longer scatter. We come together to gather. And Jesus' presence is with us here by his spirit this minute. So that our chief shepherd is in and amongst us as I speak right now. And so we no longer flee. And this is just a reminder, Christian. You cannot be a Christian off alone any more than a sheep can be part of the flock off alone in a ditch. We, we have to be gathered together. And what we do much of our time is rehearsing and remembering and reminding ourselves of what our chief shepherd has done and the future that he has purchased for us. As we gather together rejoicing and we rejoice that there is no other way. And I hope if this really falls on you the way it ought to fall on you here this morning, that because I'm telling you there is no other way, it relieves all the burdens and the heartache for you to say, I must find a different way. I must labor. I must endeavor. I must prove myself to find some other way. Friends, that's work and you'll not work. The shepherd was struck and we were bought with the precious blood of Christ as the hymn sings. We, we come and we leave this morning so grateful that there is no other way. For that means that my greatest reasons for being ashamed, your greatest reasons for being afraid, your greatest temptations to flee, all of that is gone. Because there is no other way. There's a mountain of weight that you may have come in here this morning with. I don't know your background, your history, but so many of you, we are all facing various trials. There's a mountain of, of weight of, of anxiety and pain and sin that you're dealing with. But friend, if you believe that Jesus paid it all, there's no other way. There's nothing you have left to do. That mountain of weight for Christians, it's gone. It's been gone for 2,000 years. So don't look for another way. There is no other way. That was the father's answer to the son's request. And as we'll sing in a moment, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, the fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. We live. There's no other way 
Because our shortcomings are that monumental. Our shepherd is that resolute. Our sin is that ugly. Our savior is that gracious to you right now. Would you pray with me? Father, what can we say in response to this reality? What can we say except thank you? Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you did not find another way out of this. Father, thank you that we, like Peter, who've shamed you in so many ways, can receive your grace this morning. That we can be restored. That we can come in here knowing we have not one ounce of sin to pay for because it's all been paid. That you receive the cup on our behalf. And Father, we thank you for the gathered church. We look our brothers and sisters in the eyes. Thankful that you have not just redeemed us, but you are, we have not redeemed ourselves, but you redeemed us as a people together. So this morning we say thank you in Jesus name. Amen.